and welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I'm your host Tarun Gupta and today I and my colleague Nidhi Singh host Miguel Fernandez, the co-founder and CEO of Capchase. Capchase's mission is to help SaaS companies grow their businesses through non-dilutive capital, market insights and community support. Miguel suffered most of the pains that Capchase is trying to solve while scaling sales, customer success and international at Geoblink. Before pursuing an MBA at Harvard Business School, where he dropped out to start Capchase in early 2020. When not at work, Miguel loves helping founders that are just starting out to achieve product market fit as fast as possible. Join us as we discuss Miguel's entrepreneurial journey from Europe to the US, challenges that SaaS companies face with upfront costs, how Harvard Business School helped Miguel, and their recent partnership to enable capital access for small businesses. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey Miguel, good morning. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Hi Tarang, Nidhi, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. So Miguel, for listeners who may not know, could you provide an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, so um well, it's been it's been a journey. I studied engineering back in Spain, which is where I'm from. um and munich so madrid and munich i did mechanical engineering and energy engineering mostly nuclear um and in reality i never worked as an engineer besides some some internships so then i actually joined consulting i was working you know uh, mostly in tmt and banking um and then you know saw that it was great to learn about how to do things but i was really working on projects and problems that i was never going to face you know if i eventually started my own thing So I started doing things on the side, tried to do two startups which both failed, and then I joined the SaaS company as the first person in sales. And there I built sales, customer success and international across Madrid and London and uh, and yeah, like that was where I was first exposed, you know, to the different financing pains of a SaaS company. And then after 3 years and taking the company from 0 to a few million ARR, I went over to to HBS to to my MBA. and then start catches midway through after having researched you know the intersection between SaaS and fintech for you know the first like few months after starting school so it was really a journey you know from seeing like big banks in consulting to then uh, working uh, as small startups in need of financing and all the way to research and access to you know connections and professors that HBS um, gave us You're an serial entrepreneur who has launched so many startups in the e-commerce space and the peer-to-peer equipment lending space. What inspired you to enter the fintech space and specifically build Capchase? Yeah, so you know, it's funny when you say serial entrepreneur. I think that 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 is a term for when people launch several like amazing companies, like I don't know Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey, or whatever. Um, in those in those cases, when those two startups that we launched were really bad, you know, like we. you can talk about them later but um there was just like not great ideas and and poor execution right so um how we got into into capsis you know basically the problem sorry we got into capsis basically because we suffered the problem extensively in in in, in real time right so in, in real lives and before before capsis so out of the co-founding team three of us were working at the same SaaS company actually and one was working in investing at the growth equity stage right so we were experimenting or suffering the same problems on different sides of the table so the ones in the SaaS company the main problem that we saw was that every single customer wanted to pay monthly or as late as possible 
and then us as a, as a company to you know to be as capital efficient as possible, we wanted them to pay up front so we could recover all the customer acquisition costs, all the implementation and data costs that we had to do to sign them up. And then, you know, like the only way we had for them to pay up front was to give them very large discounts. So that would solve the problem of, you know, the, the working capital or being capital efficient, but it would impact the average contract value. It would impact the lifetime value. And then it would impact also our valuation. So, you know, it was the lesser evil kind of. And then on the investor side, Shemek, uh, was in growth equity, was also seeing how, um, you know, reducing the CAC payback was always, you know, a core topic in board decks and, and in board meetings in order to increase the operational efficiency and capital efficiency of a SaaS company. So um, that was kind of the problem that we were trying to solve. And we we're looking at different ways to solve it. Revenue-based financing became one of the, you know, like possible options to, to get around that limitation. That's super interesting. And uh, so I'm curious to hear, you know, talk to me a little bit more about CapChase. What are the types of products and solutions that the company offers and specific use cases that you've seen most often? Yeah, so the origin of CapChase, like the first idea that started to resonate with, with customers was almost like a conversion tool so that SaaS companies could offer flexible payment terms to the customers, but always get the cash up front. So then when, we, when we're talking to customers, they're always saying, well, not always, but like some of the quotes they were saying was like, hey, this is like the holy grail of SaaS because by offering these flexible payment terms, I can accelerate my sales cycle and at the same time increase my average contract value. And usually in SaaS is one at the expense of the other. If you raise prices, it's going to take longer to close, you know? And if you give discounts on lower prices, then you can accelerate uh, sales. So they were very excited about it. But always the next question was, hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we kind of like give terms to all of our current customers instead of just to the new ones? So why, why don't I do this for my 300 existing customers as opposed to the 10 new ones that I close every month? So then we started to see that what founders wanted was actually they wanted to turn all those future payments, all that ARR into financing to be able to reinvest it into more growth and not be as dependent on VC money, which we all know that it is very expensive. So that's how we saw that, hey, like maybe, you know, there is a way in which we can start with a revenue-based financing product. So turning all that future revenue into financing and then start expanding, you know, um, with all the knowledge that we have gathered from, you know, like this revenue-based financing, we can start expanding into automating more workflows on the, you know, payment of a SaaS product. So that's kind of like the original vision. And then... We decided to do that, we raised money on that premise, on revenue-based financing, as you know, a watch to then building more of a horizontal you know, automation of uh, a, a, the transaction of a SaaS product. And we went to markets at the end of August 2020. And the, the, the use cases you know, at the beginning was just like general financing. You know, you just, this becomes another financing source, you know, and then like, you can use it as you want. And what we've seen is that the most successful companies um, we're using it in a certain way. And that way has helped to shape the product moving forward. And basically what that means is that such companies, you know, suddenly have different sources of funds. They have venture capital, they have venture debt, which is like fairly long term as well. And then they have shorter term financing, which is captures. So then what makes sense is to align uses of funds with sources of funds, both in terms of quantity and in terms of scalability 
and kind of like terms or maturity, right? So then what we've seen is that the best companies use their VC money and venture debt um, money to invest in longer term initiatives like new products, new geographies, kind of like those asymmetric bets that if they work out, it's incredible and kind of like can change the trajectory of a company. And if they don't work out, it's okay because you either don't have to return the money, like equity, or you have a long time to let the rest of the business catch up with returning the money, like venture debt. On the other hand, you know, things that are very predictable, very like clear cut, you know what's going to happen. Um, and they have shorter term returns. Then it makes sense to finance all of that with shorter term financing that is very scalable and very cost efficient, like cap chase. So for example, things like customer acquisition or things like working capital or things like, you know, CAC recovery, all those things that you know, like after a certain time, how long it takes you to make the money back, then you can finance with cap chase. And those things actually usually scale with the company. So the larger the revenue, the bigger your needs in terms of CAC financing, in terms of CAC payback recovery, in terms of your implementation costs and so on. So then it scales. It is very, it's basically by design that Capsis scales with a company's size and needs. Diving a bit deeper into Capsis or Capsis business model, right? How do you earn revenue? At what stage of their growth do startups generally avail your services? And do you have any competitors in the market? Right. So, so let's see. Um, the way we make money is basically a spread between our cost of capital and our uh, and the, the, the price you know, that we give to our customers. Right? So we charge a bit more than what it costs us to, to operate as a business. So then um, we are getting into different revenue streams you know, with software and with payments, but those are still nascent. So you know, those will grow to, to be bigger and bigger in the future. In terms of the companies that we work with, these companies have to be you know, SaaS companies, either like fully software as a service or what we call hybrid SaaS, which is you know, SaaS plus services or SaaS plus hardware. Um, and in terms of you know, metrics and so on, they have to have at least six months of revenue generating history and at least $100,000 of ARR. So it can be relatively early stage because you know, we, can, we can start with very little amounts, you know, like 20, 25K, and then go all the way up to like 20 million or more. So then what, we do, what we've done is you know, start with companies that are you know, earlier stage, and then as they grow, we continue to scale with them. And we've seen incredible use cases or success stories of companies that we started working with at like 70K ARR, so even a little bit earlier than we usually do. And then you know, now they have 9 million ARR, or companies who started at like 15 million ARR and have 250 million ARR, right? So all of this in the span of just a few, of just a couple of years. So it is a very, very scalable model. So another thing I'm quite curious about is that CapChase was built during the pandemic. Did this bring any unique challenges to you as you tried to launch CapChase? And similarly, right now that the US economy is experiencing uncertainty, has it impacted your growth plans or your lending capacity in any way? Right. So in both, both um, situations, create opportunities and challenges. Right? So for example, in COVID, um, the biggest challenge was starting a team fully remote and not being able to see people in person. And this, you know, like everybody had to face that. So it's not like, you know, we had a particular situation. Um, I think the opportunity that generated was one, operationally, like we were suddenly, you know, like just sitting in our rooms with all the time in the world to, to work on this. So, you know, it was very easy to 
just show a ton of progress very quickly. And then in terms of getting feedback from people, from customers, from professors, from stakeholders, essentially, it was way easier to find time because everybody was sitting in the rooms, not doing anything. Um, at the same time, you know, more specifically on Capchase, a bunch of founders actually saw that that debt was a way to finance the business because they were all getting PPP loans, you know, EID loans or like some kind of like payroll protection plans. So that was great because then they saw that there were other sources of funds to work on the, on the, to, to fund the startup. Um, and then obviously all the shift, you know, in terms of SaaS adoption all over the world drove a ton of innovation in the space, you know, and, you know, just like grew the pie basically that we could access. Um, at the same time, the current situation right now, um, for us is very, very exciting. On the one hand, we are the number one player in the space by far, by very, very far. So we are the most recognized brand. People come to us and then, um, there is a massive need for this product because VC money is either non-existent or extremely expensive. So then when founders are looking at ways to continue to grow, they are coming to us, right? We, we are enabling them to not have to do a trade-off between growth and runway and kind of like get both at the same time. So then, you know, you have increased demand, increased you know, visibility and brand presence and like being the number ones in the space. And that creates a ton of opportunity for us. Also, we see that, you know, valuations in the public markets are really hit, but revenues continue to grow. And we only care about revenues. We don't care about uh, revenues. I mean, SaaS revenues. We don't care about our um, customer valuations. Right? So that, that's also a huge positive. A negative is that if we enter into a recession, into a really bad recession, and actually IT budgets, you know, SaaS revenues start to, to, to get cuts, that affects the whole SaaS industry as a whole. And that would affect our customers' growth rates and eventually viability. And you know that's why we are like also solving other problems beyond financing, so that we're not exposed. I really resonate with that, Miguel. You know, I worked at an early stage B two B fintech startup where a lot of our costs were of implementation were loaded upfront, and revenue came in pieces. You know, month on month or quarter on quarter later. So similar to what you mentioned, especially during the pandemic, we struggled to find out you know what our best funding options were and how to balance this out. So in your opinion, having seen so many different startups and businesses, what do you think a startup's funding structure should look like? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there are a few options, right? And there are, you know, more options coming up. And, and, and I hope to, to think that we are leading, you know, the way there and coming up with this creative structures. But, you know, basically, like like you said, it, right? Like before Capchase, you had like VC funding or, or venture debt until you go to a certain stage, there are no other sources of capital. So then what happens is that if you sign up a customer and it takes you, you know, eight months to get paid back or 12 months to get paid back, then suddenly you are in the red for that specific customer for the following 12 months. You have CAC, you have implementation, you know, um, you have like training costs and everything. And then this only get paid back month of a month, a quarter of a quarter until you start to be on the black. And then, you know, after that, it's mostly all revenues. And if you have a high gross margin, it's mostly all gross profit. Um, what happens is that if you accelerate and instead of signing up one customer per month, you start closing two customers per month or three customers per month, that gap until you get made whole by the customers, by each cohort of customers, becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. So you actually need to pour more money into the business to fund growth. 
And then the days what caused people to like raise a ton of rounds in, in, in rapid succession, um, to be able to continue to grow and continue to, to fill the fire. But what does Capturers do, right? Like what it does is it closes that gap. Basically, it enables you to get all your CAC up front. And then as your customer would pay you, then those payments, um, go to Capturers. So then like you're not losing money on every cohort. And if you accelerate, you actually get more money and more runway and not less money and less runway. So it seems to be like they can be like a two-tier structure where you have VC for, again, the long-term um, activities and then CAPTIS for short-term activities that, um, whose needs to scale with the business and with the business growth. There comes another option, which is starting to be more like prevalent now, which is off-balance sheet financing, right? So what we discussed until now has been VC, that's equity, that's in the business, and then debt, which is in your liability. It can be short-term or long-term liabilities, but it is liability. What, what can an off-balance sheet mechanism be? And like, one, is, is, it, is it even like possible for, for SaaS? And two, is there anything out there? Right? So off-balance sheet financing until now has been mostly factoring or something like that where, you know, a third party comes in, um, gives you cash for an invoice, and then the liability for the invoice is transferred to the factoring party, and then they go and collect directly from the customer. So you as a company, you have cash, and then um, your payables don't become debt. You know, it is a liability, but it's not it's not additional indebtedness. That has you know some interesting benefits in the sense that the risk is shifted to the buyer, and then you know no other like additional leverage ratios get impacted, or financial covenants can be you know avoided and so on. Right, so it has some some advantages. Is that possible for SaaS or not? Well, factoring has been possible for SaaS. But people don't really like it because it signals that the startup needs cash urgently because suddenly like, there's like a third party asking to get paid, you know, in between the SaaS company and the buyer. So is there anything you know, in SaaS that can have the aspect, you know, of, of like a you know, off-balance sheet financing mechanism? And the, the answer is that not yet, right? And, uh, but there seems to be like there's something to be done there. Where, for example, a SaaS company could actually offer flexible payment terms to the customers. Like, hey, the price is a hundred thousand dollars a year. If you actually want to pay, you know, in any other way, in monthly or quarterly, or pay at the end of the year or whatever, then you can use this payment tool for that. So, you know, that's something that we're exploring, and like we'll probably be um, doing something in these lines in the future. I just just gonna recap that if you were like to maximize the amount of financing at the lowest cost and without getting too leveraged. It seems like you have like a three-tier structure. We have VC, you have, um, you know, debt or a short-term debt like CapChase, and then you have off-balance sheet financing where the actual debt is transferred to your buyer's balance sheets. So they are actually financing the business. Another piece of news that I came across is that CapChase recently partnered with Zero to simplify access to capital for small businesses. Can you share a bit about how this partnership came about and why it adds value to small businesses and both the parties? What we saw also, you know, and this is another big kind of trend in this space, is that financing is becoming, it is changing from being you know, something that the CFO or the view of finance that company decides to something that's like more embedded in different workflows, right? So that has huge implications for this space, right? It has huge implications because banks suddenly like need to be embedded in those workflows um, because like 
the, the decisions to raise money are not going to be you know, controlled into one single person and they're going to be distributed to organizations at different points in time. So then what we're seeing here is that the way that we underwrite a company to understand how much money they can access is by um, syncing in real time with their banking, accounting, and revenue management softwares. We do this through API. It's almost like logging on Facebook three times. Like you just click on a button and it's done. And this, you know, allows us to under the company, estimate the value of the, uh, sorry, the, the quality of the revenue and, you know, the future of the company. Uh, and then, you know, our customers go into our dashboard and then they operate there. They select how much money they need to access, you know, and for how long and so on. So all these integrations, what they do is on the one hand, just make it easier for the customer. They reduce steps. So with one click, they can install it on the dashboard, on their zero dashboard. And then, um, you know, all the process of underwriting happens in the back end much easier. And then they can almost operate within one single dashboard, that being zero. We've done this with Stripe. We've done this with zero. Then we've, we've done this with a few others. And um, so basically this reduces steps and makes it more contextual. So customers can go and, you know, send an invoice or close a customer and with one click, get the financing to kind of like recover all the money that they incurred in, or all the costs that they incurred in. So then also for us, for Capsis, I mean, it's probably stating the obvious, but this is great on the one half for brand awareness because like very big brands want to partner with Capsis on this. And then also for distribution, because suddenly we're accessing huge pools of customers that, um, you know, can access captives by the click of a button. That sounds great. Really building B2B SaaS in the best possible way. Um, Miguel, we want to take a little bit of a pivot here to talk about your experience as an operator. You know, you mentioned that you've built two quote-unquote failed businesses in the past. What's different this time? What are you doing differently when you're thinking about hiring the best people and building the right processes as you scale captives? Right. So I think that the... The, the biggest difference is that, you know, when we started those two companies, um, and to give some more context, you know, one was like a marketplace for renting of sports equipment. And the other one was, um, another marketplace where we would sell up and coming direct to consumer brands and we would deliver them within two hours in Madrid. So then like the thing is that, you know, both of those ideas fail for different reasons, but the biggest thing probably is that we did all the customer validation with people that we knew. So then like that meant that every, I mean, if you, if you ask somebody that you know about, you know, you ask them to tell you whether the idea is good or not, most likely they're going to tell you that it's really good because they don't want to hurt you. Um, and then like you start making decisions based on wrong information and wrong assumptions. And then when you bring it out, nobody actually wants it. Right. So, so then, or nobody's ready to pay for it. So I think that, you know, like, the biggest thing that we learned there was that, you know, like you need to try things with real customers and actually ask them to pay. You don't want to, you want to ask them if the things are good or not. Like you actually, the real test is if they're willing to pay um, in terms of, you know, like either like team commitments or actual, um, you know, money, right? So that was the very big difference when launching a company. With Capsis, we didn't build anything until we, until we were actually like charging customers for it. And, you know, like when we were telling our friends about the idea, they were not sure if it was that good or not, uh, which was actually really interesting to understand that, hey, our ICP actually is very valuable and that's all we care about. 
Uh, and then in terms of scaling processes and teams, I think that we've been constantly out of our comfort zone as founders, as we grew Capsis. We've grown really quickly, right? We, we went from zero to like 110 people within the span of a year and a half, right? So it's been very rapid. Um, and the way we've gone around that is by, by one, getting the right people around the table. So from all the way from investors to actual like team members, um, and then asking them, like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel on most things. So some things, like, we're building things from scratch, mostly in product and so on. But then everything else has probably already been done. So instead of trying to figure it out, um, which you can eventually do, but you're going to spend a lot of time, then asking the right people um, has been, like, a massive you know, time advantage. And then, you know, once you know what excellence looks like, then go and find the excellence and bring them on board. So usually... And this is another cliche, but like you actually want to find people that are way smarter than you or because they are, because they've done it before and then just give them runway to go and do what they do best. And if you make mistakes, which you always do when bringing these people on board, then make very swift decisions because somebody that's like in the wrong role, um, if that stays for long, it's bad for them because they're not, there's a cost of opportunity for them where they could be like crushing it somewhere else. And then also for the company. It's not great because one, you're, you're, you're just wasting time and money. And two, when people see that other people are not performing, but they are still in the team that can be motivated the whole team, right? And create like a, like a toxic culture. So that's been a massive, massive learning. And yeah. And, 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 and it's just like, just build things like only like commits engineering and product resources to things that customers are willing to buy even before they exist, because that is the ultimate the ultimate um, proof and there's no point in trying to think a roadmap for the next year or two years um, if you don't even have like the first customer pay for something. Everything that comes after the first you know, payment, um, customers will tell you and you will see with data generated through interactions. I love that. It sounds like Capture is a great place to work. So Miguel, we're all curious, all our listeners, is Capture hiring? And if yes, where can interest, interested candidates apply for roles? Tell us more about how, how Capchase is thinking about its employee growth plans. Yeah, we're hiring all the time in different areas, right? Um, and and you know, the, the way that we think about hiring, we, we don't want to overextend ourselves either, right? So we have OKRs and we have every team has their own OKRs. And the completion of those OKRs act as gating mechanisms to add more people to a team, right? So we want to be very thoughtful about you know, being very efficient and making sure that people actually have a lot of things to do so that they're engaged and they feel like they are actually learning and, and progressing. So, so yeah, there are a ton of uh, roles open. Uh, the best way is to, to, to go to our careers website and, and look for roles that are exciting and then, um, just applying there and, or connecting, you know, on, on LinkedIn or, or whatever. My next question is one which I love to ask all my guests. In your opinion, what are some trends in fintech that are going to really shape the industry five years from now? I mean, it's, it's very self-serving, right? But I think that actually like purpose-specific financing or contextual financing or however you want to call it is going to cause a massive, massive change that we're not yet talking too much about, right? So um, when banks, if you ask a bank, how are they going to win against fintechs? It's always about scale, about relationships, about excellent service, et cetera. But all of that is going to disappear in my mind and it's going to be a button or not even a button, it's just maybe like an approval or whatever, 
embedded into different workflows. And this is a massive shift because, again, pe- the people making financial decisions are not going to be just one person that you can take to dinner, that you can do, you know, like events and build a relationship with. It's actually going to be like some analyst or not even or maybe like some like entry level person, like paying an invoice and instead of paying it today, they want to pay it in 90 days. Or a person you're choosing to collect from a customer and instead of, you know, like just waiting for the money to come, maybe like turning that money into upfront financing, you know, at a button, right? Or, you know, paying a company, you know, in, in, in some in some other geography without going through the FX desk at a bank. So that actually is going to transfer a lot of the EV from banks to startups and to fintechs. And then the relationships actually will become probably like way less relevant. And, uh, you know, like we'll probably see either startup margins expand or, um, and, um, banking margins compress a lot. So yeah, that, that's going to be a massive, massive change, I think. Excited to see that happen. Uh, Miguel, we now want to take another pivot and do a quick rapid fire with you about all things that make Miguel and Capchis what they are today. The first question is, what's a fun fact about you that most people don't know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, let's see. I think when we started CapChase, um, we were literally out of our rooms in a, in a, in a room in, in, in Cambridge, um, in, in a shared house in Cambridge with six other people. And uh, one, one funny thing was that, you know, the, the only way that um, we had to actually, like, do everything that we were doing, because people were always asking, like, how can you, like, investors and so on. How can you like reply at all times? Like it seems like you guys are never sleeping. And the only way that we had to do that was actually like just having a ton of caffeine. So we went through a journey of like going from caffeine to well from coffee to you know Red Bulls and then Red Bulls were like not healthy. So we went into matcha and that was like, you know, we had like massive matches multiple times a day to just stay awake. And then that meant that we just yeah we would stay awake during the day but also during the night because there was no way to sleep after having all that caffeine. Um, and in fact, you know, even we actually got COVID uh, during our seed fundraising and we didn't tell anyone and we, we didn't stop. Um, and we didn't stop because of all of this like, caffeine that we're taking. So um, that's quite a journey. I think my next question is a very perfect segue from this. Why did you choose to drop out of the Harvard Business School? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I get that a lot from my, from my mom. Like she still expects me to, to finish, uh, which which maybe I will at some point. I I always say that my biggest win was to get into HBS because of all the like unlock that it enabled, both you know mentally as well as you know like motivationally. Um, and I mean I would never have thought of dropping out of HBS, but the thing is that we almost like got pulled into it because everything was remote. You know everything was on Zoom, as as as, as you know, right? So. Um, what happened is that it was very easy to multitask. So then we saw ourselves just um, scheduling things, you know, on top of each other, right? So we had we had like class on Zoom, and at the same time we were like either like emailing customers or working on product or like in, on other calls. So we saw that it was really impossible to combine both things at the same time because Capsis was growing really rapidly then. So then the choice was to either drop out of Capsis or drop out of HPS. And the of capsules was not possible. We just couldn't just wait for, you know, eight months until we finished HVS. Um, and, you know, dropping out of HVS was very easy because they actually make it easy for you and, and they give you five years to come back. So then it was an easy choice then, um, although quite momentous. So that's how we did it. But I'm, I can be grateful enough for the school. 
And I'm guessing one of the reasons you're grateful is because you met your co-founder and your early team member there. Is that how you met your early team members? Yeah. So um, there's four co-founders, two of which uh, worked with me in a previous company, and then Pshemek, who I met at HVS. And it's fine because at the beginning, we were just, you know, like friends out of, you know, just like having similar backgrounds and enjoying similar things. And, and we're having a, a lot of time together in trips and going out and so on. And then we started talking about business. And, and then we actually have hatched or like, well, more like serendipitously, we moved together with four other friends. And then we were talking about summer plans. Um, you know, we decided to start working together on this. And, and yeah, everything, everything got uh, very fast. And also, you know, like being at HVS enabled us to access all these amazing professors that knew about every single aspect that we needed to cover, both in discovery for the, com- for the company, but also when scaling and operating. And that was also very, very good in terms of access. I'm, I'm aware, like, you must, in business school, you must have done a lot of networking dinners. But if I were to ask you who is one individual that you would absolutely love to have dinner with, what would your answer be? I think it's a little bit of, a, of, a, of an easy one, right? But, like, I would, since ages, since ages ago, like 10 years ago, I would have loved to have dinner with um, Elon Musk. Um, I just want to really know, like, firsthand what it is like to manage those teams and how things that seem impossible just get done time and time again, um, you know, through him and, and his teams. So I'm very, very curious about, you know, management styles and how to kind of distort reality to make something happen that everybody else thinks is impossible. Our last question, Miguel, is where do you think Miguel and Capchase are going to be, say, 10 years from now? Well, 10 years from now, I think that we're fundamentally going to change the way that SaaS companies finance themselves and the way that SaaS products are transacted. So I'm very, very excited about that. I think we have a generational opportunity and, and like everything we've done until now has just enabled us to you know, go the next 10 years. Uh, in terms of me, I'm just focused on, on Capsis and um, it would be a dream to continue you know, to be at the, at the head of the company then. Um, but you know, like I will do whatever it takes to, to make Capsis successful. On that note, Miguel, we will let you get back to work. But Nidhi and I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Tanya and Nidhi. This was great. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Gupta.